Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober 43 years and two months now. That's on Alcoholics Anonymous. Of course. I come from a little town up in North Idaho called Coeur d'Alene. It's the greatest little city in the world. <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, I graduated from high school up there, and just a year ago in September, <laughs> they threw a big AA party for me up there, a big breakfast in North Idaho. So they come from Canada, and they called, came from all over. They, all they had to say was LM. They knew who I was. So uh, it was a great success. It was uh, Quite wonderful for me to see these these dodos that died of alcoholism, you know, that I used to go to school with, didn't know enough to get into AA. And uh, about two of them, <laughs> two of them are still alive and, and from my class. But uh, about a month after I was there, a friend of mine in Coeur d'Alene sent me a clipping out of the paper. It says, uh, Coeur d'Alene Press, October 25th of 1983. North Idaho album from the files of the Coeur d'Alene Press. Fifty years ago, Al a Lake City boy who had achieved fame as a radio performer in the Midwest, literally sang his way out of the Spokane traffic court. As you know, Spokane is 30 miles from Coeur d'Alene. The Coeur d'Alene Press reported that the boy, after being acquitted of a traffic offense, was asked by the prosecutor to sing for the judge. The boy responded with a few verses of There's a Light in Your Eye, Sweetheart Darling, <laughs> and left the courtroom great, in a great applause. So you see, 50 years ago, I had my first drunk driving charge. 50 years ago. Of course, I'm 103 now, you know. <laughs> and I came into AA when I was 10 years old. In the cemetery. But, uh, <laughs> they, they said, they said there would be tapes of this. He didn't ask me if I would give permission to take, take my talk. I charge money for that, you know. Send me a tape, would you? Okay. And you got permission now. I know guys are even writing books now, you know. <laughs> AA books. What, uh, the, where the hell are we going? I don't know. It's, it's, it's just simply awful. We're so careful about this anonymity business, too. We're going way overboard on that, you know. Uh, what the hell is the difference if they know the guys that you're with all the time uh, know your last name? You know, there was an article in the, in the grapevine here. Well, there's one in this, this month's grapevine by, about this anonymity business. We're, we're going crazy on this stuff. It says, uh, Dr. Bob comments on the anonymous and AA, how anonymous a AA member should be. So the, the tradition says we need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. Dr. Bob, the co-founder of AA, commented on the tradition 11 as follows. Since our tradition on anonymity designed the, designated the exact level where the line should be held, it must be obvious to everyone who can read and understand the English language that to maintain anonymity at any other level is definitely a violation of this tradition. The AA who hides his identity from his fellow AAs by using only a given name violates the tradition just as much as the AA who permits the name to appear in the press in connection with, in connection with matters pertaining to AA. The former is maintaining his anonymity above the level of the press, radio, and film, and the latter below. Did you ever stop to think of that? How the hell did people years ago know there was such a thing as AA if uh, guys like myself didn't spread it around among people who we were working with? I was a musician most of my life, and I spent 25 years in the studios. <laughs> there was a few lapses in there, I'll say that, you know. I was a trombone player 40 years. 
And after I got into AA, I started getting a little bit of work. It took me about four years to get back on the top. I was rated as one of the four best Ramon players in the world at one time. Typical, typical alcoholic and a lot of drive. And uh, I'm working at MGM one night. Uh, that's when we did lots of pictures. MGM was doing 300 pictures a year, and now they're doing 30. And uh, the, the, the last thing they put in a picture, you know, the last thing before the release is the music, the background music. So they worked the hell out of you all night long sometimes, and that was fine. we just get drunk. So this particular night, I had been in AA for maybe two or three months, and uh, and I'm on a big picture out at MGM. I was an extra trombone out there. And at midnight, about midnight, the brass section always got drunk. They always got drunk. We, <laughs> we always had a little bar of our own hidden underneath, you know. So everybody's getting drunk, and they're coming around to me and says, Come on, Al, have a drink. Come on, Al, have a drink. And I says, No, I'm not drinking. Well, what makes you stop drinking? I says, I'm just not drinking. I belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. And they says, What's that? And I says, We don't drink. We don't we don't go on the wagon or anything. We just don't drink. And finally, the first trombone player came around to me, a dear friend of mine, Randy was his name, and he says, he was drunk as hell, and he says, Don't pay attention to these guys. They're all jealous, and so am I. And I'm going to call you one of these days. Three months later, he called me. He's been sober ever since. He's got 43 years in now. Randy has, because I broke my anonymity at that level. And I would say between them and other places where I went, there were 150 musicians at least are sober because I broke my anonymity at that level. It wasn't in the public. It was among the people who wanted to know. So we must be careful when we talk about anonymity, what we're talking about. Press, radio, film, and TV, and that's all. My, where I live uh, for four or five blocks, everybody knows I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the result is that I have a lot of people. <laughs> they got me saving souls right in my own living room, you know. <laughs> but now these people wouldn't even know it. There was a beautiful young girl and her husband that moved up the street from us there. And uh, she came over by my house one day. And they'd been just there about a year. And the gal says, you belong to AA. I says, yeah. Do you? And she says, no, but my mother does. <laughs> and she says, she's coming out from Pennsylvania. And she'll want to go to some meetings. Will you take her? And I said, sure. So I took her to four or five meetings there in two weeks while she was in town. She thought, Western AA was the greatest in the world, and it is the greatest in the world. You see, we got the worst drunks in the world out here. <laughs> go west, young man, go west. You know, we hit the ocean, and here we are. We can't go any further. See? You see, I did most of my drinking uh, during, uh, well, in the 30s, because I got into AA uh, April 17th of 1941. AA had been here about a year then. Uh, up and down, up and down. But the first group that was a successful group was the one that I came into. Anyway, back in the 30s, alcoholism was not recognized as a disease by AMA, American Medical Association. Therefore, you couldn't get into a hospital. You couldn't get into a veteran's hospital. No one would uh, recognize you. All you were with a, was a half-wit, you were a no-good bum, and so forth, if you were an alcoholic. And so through the 30s, there was nothing for the alcoholic to do. You see? All he could do was die. They throw you in the can, they put you out on these road-building projects, they put you in nut houses, and this is what happened to the alcoholics in those days. And it was a rough deal. It was that way for a long time after AA started, too. And we had a ding-dong member of AA <laughs> who was a senator, and this senator got up before Congress around 1950. He was a senator from Iowa. I can't use his name because he's still around. Still sober, the old bastard. <laughs> And he, uh, he got up before Congress, and he got, him to, he got a bill through for $350 million for the rehabilitation of alcoholics. And the very next day, AMA declared alcoholism as a disease. <laughs> now you've got all these hospitals. You see, it costs you eight to $18,000 for them to get you sober and get you into AA. They're taking off 12-step work away from us, you know. It's killing us. It's really killing us. I remember 12-step work. My wife and I used to go out and get a 12-step call. And this is what got me and kept me, helped me stay sober, is going making 12-step calls, you see. I didn't get paid for it. I was a counselor for a year, and I quit it because, you know something? My conscience hurt me so bad. I was getting paid for 12-step work. It was exactly what I did. I was a counselor at Northrop Aircraft for one year, and I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. Well, anyway, get a call, a 12-step call, and I'd say, well, see you. We got a tall step call over here, crack, 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 wherever it was, you know. So we'd stop by a liquor store and I'd pick up a jug and we'd go over to this place and my wife would talk to the wife. Usually the wife is walking around the living room, wringing her hands and crying and screaming at her old man. You know, the poor bastard, she don't know any better than him, she's just as bad shape as he is, you know. 
and uh, my wife would sit her down and tell her on about Alcoholics Anonymous and what we were doing, and I'd sit down with a drunk, get him to stop puking, and maybe get a couple drinks down him and get him cooled down a little bit, sit there and taper him off to maybe 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and then I'd get back there at 9 o'clock the next morning, and 3, 4 days you got a guy back on the job. This is what we call 12-step work. This is putting yourself out. This is the thing that keeps you and I sober. You're getting right from the old box because we went through this. And it's awful good for us drunks to go back and see another drunk <laughs> in the same condition that we were, you know. It's, it's very good for us. So that's a, that's what they've been taking away from us. Of course, I'm an old-timer and I'm a griper. Real wonderful griper, God damn. Here, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the central committees and the central office down here, did you hear what who was elected? One guy and 12 girls? What the hell's the matter with you guys? Just sitting back and letting all the broads take over, you know? <laughs> our delegates to New York. Pretty soon all our delegates to New York will be late. You know what's the matter? The guys are just getting lazy and letting the women take over. They're bad alcoholics, you know, some of these women. You have to watch every move they make. You see? <laughs> uh, God bless you. We love you. We love you. When I came in, there was one broad, and I mean, it was, no, it's just simply one of them. So I tried all the angles back in the 30s. The cure, 150 bucks, they puke you to death. I took psychiatric treatment. The guy says, you're a superior intelligence, you have no business here, and he kicked my fanny out. I tried religion like a lot of, of the rest of the stoops. You know, it's not a sin to drink. It's a sin to be a glutton. That's about the size of it. Unfortunately, a lot of these alcoholics that go, <laughs> go back to religion, you know, and they got as nuts on the religion as they were the booze. They might just as well have stayed drunk. They were just as bad off. And then Alcoholics Anonymous came along. And Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a 100% guarantee that I would never drink again. If I lived according to certain conditions, as honest as I possibly could. Alcoholics Anonymous gives us all a 100% guarantee that we will never drink again if we live according to certain conditions, which are the simple 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, as honest as we possibly can. And a lot of us say, I haven't the ability to be honest anymore. But it says in the book, the willingness to try to be honest alone will do the good, will do the job. And I accent the word honesty because that's the basis and the foundation of our sobriety. Do we honestly want to stay sober? Will we honestly go to any length? May I don't ask us any more than what we can handle. And we who honestly want to stay sober try to live according to these steps. And we didn't know much about them. But you know, it says so often, it's our stinking thinking that caused our drinking. And something seems to happen to us who really want to stay sober in our feeble attempt to live according to these 12 simple steps, which are actually spiritual steps, because they're all good, they're all, they're all positive. And our close friends and our family notice long before we realize that there's been a definite change in our attitude towards ourselves and our attitude towards others. In other words, we're having a change in our personality, although slight, enough to keep us sober. You know, Bill was so smart. When these steps were written down, because he said in those three pertinent ideas, probably no human power could help us, but God could and would have sought. And here we find out that there was no human power could help us, but God could and would have sought. So we come to believe in a power greater than ourselves, outside of a human power. Nobody's pushing it, just give it a lot of thought. Because it's a miracle that we're sober. And there's only one thing that can cause a miracle, and that's some power outside of ourselves. Some call it God. Some call it Muhammad. Some call it anything they desire. I am a great deal of Indian blood. And my family were Canadian French, and they're all, <laughs> boy, we'll talk about Indians. <laughs> and I have a little nephew who's a Jesuit priest, and I said, Joe... Who's God? And he says, God is anything that you wish to believe in as a power outside of a human power. So he says, uh, we believe in a, in a spiritual power, the great spiritual, the great spirit. What's the matter with that? I says, that's fine. 
So my God is the great spirit. It all works out so very good. No human power could help us that God could and would have sought. I'm sober about five years and I happen to be with Bill Wilson. I know him quite well. He was just like you and me, con artist of the greatest, you know. <laughs> Great guy. He was always angling. And I said, uh, how, how, how am I, how, what am I, how am I staying sober? God couldn't would have sought. He says, you're trying to live the 12 steps to the best of your ability, aren't you? And I says, yeah, well, you're seeking the help of God by living these 12 steps because these are spiritual steps. This is positive living. And if we try to live these 12 steps to the best of our ability, we can't do it perfectly. We will get the help of this power greater than ourselves. We have a change in our attitudes and our personality, a definite change in our personality. And this is the great spiritual awakening. Did you ever stop to think how simple Alcoholics Anonymous is? They say the spiritual awakening, the sudden spiritual awakening. Some ding-dongs have it once in a while, you know, one out of every 10,000, where they have a definite change in their personality overnight. Now, Bill was one of those. He said he had a hot flash, and I think that's what it was. <laughs> but we all have a change in our personality. We AAs who stay sober have a change in our personality, which is the true spiritual awakening. This is the spiritual awakening. So you see, most of us AAs, like myself, a stupid guy, I was twisting this thing all around, trying to find out whys and wherefores, and hell is sitting right there in front of us. We live these 12 steps to the best of our ability. We have a change in our attitude and our personality. On the right side, we stay sober. And then we keep on working on this thing, and we improve, and we improve. And sometime in our life, we have a spiritual awakening. And we don't know when it is, but it's fine. We start getting along. We start getting along in life. Do what you're supposed to do, and you're supposed to do it, and God will take care of the rest. And that's my motto in life right on down the line. Do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm supposed to do it, and God will take care of everything, whether I like it or not. So it's supposed to be. And it's a good motto. It works very good. It's tough to swallow sometimes, but that's it. See, AA is like an old shoe. We're coming home blues. We're back home again. This is the place to be. God bless it. We alcoholics get together. We help other alcoholics. And people stay sober. And these are all spiritual acts. All of them are spiritual acts. Any action in AA is a spiritual act. The fact that I came to this meeting tonight is a spiritual act. The fact that you all came to this meeting tonight is a spiritual act. Why? Because we're trying to help ourselves, and by helping ourselves, we're helping everybody we come in contact with just a little bit in our daily life. And that's Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's true living. It's the kind of a life that we all want. We got it here. We have to help one another. By helping one another, we help ourselves. Now, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous 1941, and there was a group in Los Angeles called Los Angeles Group. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the only one. Uh, they, they, they had 34 members. And unfortunately, I got a call this morning from the wife of the founder of this group, which was the first group that was successful. There was another group started there by a gal from New York with a book who was a non-alcoholic about a year before I came in. Well, are you going to get a bunch of drunks sober by a sober gal with a book? Nobody stayed sober. So a fellow by the name of Mortimer Joseph, which I was just going to say, he passed away this morning at 5.30. He's been ill a long time. I expected a long time ago. God bless him. He had a lot to do with my sobriety. Anyway, this little guy, Mortimer Joseph, came over from Denver, Colorado. He was a little Jewish fella. I can use his name now because he's dead. And he had a book. And he came to Los Angeles and he went to several of these so-called meetings by this broad and nobody stayed sober. <laughs> so he, he started a group of his own down at the Cecil Hotel down at Skid Row. And he got it up to eight people. Mind you, eight people. That was about 1940 sometime. And one night a couple of the guys didn't show up and he sent a couple other guys over to get them. And they didn't come back so he sent the other four over to get them. And nobody came back. So he had to start all over again. When I came into AA, there were 34 members west of the Rockies. All mean old guys, all over 40 years old, but three of us, and one girl. Her name was Sybil. 
and uh, it was it was uh, the craziest group you ever saw in your life. They used they used to do awful crazy things. Uh, the format for your meeting right here was invented right there. In fact, we we incorporated AA in the state of California. You couldn't start a group unless you got our permission. You see, <laughs> we had we had a we had a couple thieves that were trying to get money, and so we were going to stop them cold. We stopped them, but we didn't use that anymore. Anyway, uh, Mort uh, Mort says I think we ought to have a format for this eating meeting definitely laid out, and so he suggested we read a portion of chapter five and the twelve steps, which we did. Then uh, some ding-dong in the back row, most likely a religious fanatic, jumped up and says we should recite the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting. And man, it hit the fan. I mean, these are old, mean old buggers, these guys. And they started a big fight in the back row. And one guy hit the other guy over the head with a chair. And I said, this is wonderful. I'm coming back to this meeting. I like this very much. Anyway, they took a vote and it went through. Now, they, they, uh, they were very, you had to be special to get into this meeting. You really had to be an alcoholic. So they had a guy at the door. And when an alcoholic had come to the door to get in, he said, do you want to stay sober on an all-time basis? And if the guy hesitated a little bit, he said, get the hell out of here and make up your mind. So we screened them right at the door, you see. Our percentage of sobriety was big, real big. was always uh, uh, stay sober on it all. We never heard that day at a time, though, those stay sober on an all-time basis. Anyway, we had two ding-dongs in a group that kept getting drunk on us, you know. <laughs> we didn't like this very well. <laughs> so uh, we had a meeting of the steering committee, which was the group, actually. And uh, we passed a law. Uh, you know, we don't have any laws in AA. Everything is suggested. But we passed the law. Anybody gets drunk twice, he's banned for life. Well, thank goodness at the next meeting, at, at the next meeting, why they, uh, uh, one of our smart old guys, one guy has some brains left, he got up and he says, I think we made a mistake. We'd always go to the book for all our answers. And he says, I think we made a mistake. He says, we, we can't, uh, we can't pass laws. He says, everything suggested. It says in the book, anybody with an alcoholic problem is welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. So we had to let those bastards back in. <laughs> it broke our hearts. I'm telling you, it broke our hearts. <laughs> Say, Bob, uh, I'll be here at 11 o'clock. Is that all right, Bob? <laughs> Believe me, I get diarrhea of the tonsils, and I get away, away from what I want to talk about. So I'll be here until 11, 11.30. We can save drunks after 11, can't we? <laughs> well, we moved over to a big hall over in 2200 West 7th there in Los Angeles. And when we got over there after a few months, why, our, our membership increased tremendously. We got about 600 members. They were coming in from Santa Barbara, Bakersfield, San Bernardino, and all the way down the coast, all the way down as far, I guess. And uh, it was it was tremendous. And now a lot of girls are coming in. Got broad sold with wonderful, you know. They were coming out from under rocks and falling out of trees, and it was. <laughs> and uh, the group really roared down there, roared down there. And then the non-alcoholics. Uh, after our first, we had two meetings. We'd uh, had one for the open meeting, and then upstairs they'd go with the non-alcoholics, and they started a group called Non-Alcoholic Family Group. And my wife was very much involved in this thing. And you know, that finally ended up with called Al-Anon. Bill Wilson and Lois came out and got a load of it, and they got the ideas of it and changed the name and went back to it. So my wife is one of the founders of Al-Anon. She doesn't go anymore. She says too much politics. But <laughs> She's a wonderful little gal. She just uh, saved my life. I mean, she sure did. So anyway, <clears throat> I came to Los Angeles in 1934 uh, with a wife and two kids, and I was married to a very intolerant woman. Very intolerant. She would get upset if I didn't come home for three or four days. One of those silly people. Then I got so bad when I did come home, there would be divorce papers laying around on the tables. You know, now you've been out on a terrible drunk for three or four days. <laughs> and you come home, you got the shakes, you're puking, you're dying, and your, your eyes are even sweating. You know, you're that bad off. And then run into these divorce papers, it's, you just have to go out and get drunk again. It's terrible. 
Across the street was another alcoholic musician by the name of Jack. Jack was brilliant. He had perfect pitch. He could write, arrange, compose, played all the reed instruments, and he was the worst drunk I ever met in my life. He was a bed drinker. Now, can you imagine laying in bed for, for four or five days just sucking on a jug? What fun do they get out of that? He says, I don't get pinched. And that was the way Jack was. Now, Jack and I organized an AA group all our own long before AA came into the picture. This, this, this group was, was, a, was, a, was the greatest, you know. And they stole a lot of our stuff. If I was dying in the morning and I had to get to the studio, I'd yell across the street, Jack, make the runner, bring me some medicine. In due time, he'd get over there with the jug and get me well. One alcoholic helping the other. <laughs> and then, <laughs> where two or more are gathered together, you see, that was just like it was the AA stole our stuff, you see. I did the same thing for Jack. Now, down, a, down on Beverly Boulevard, right near where we live, there was a liquor store down there. Old Sam Cohn owned a beautiful liquor store, off-sale liquor store, and I figured, well, I'm a smart alcoholic. I'll set myself up a charge account, which we call the cup. So I got old Sam up to two jugs, and Sam wouldn't cuff for any more. And I told Jack, I says, old Sam is rough as hell. He won't, he won't go for any more. And he says, why? And I says, well, I got on two jugs, and they won't cuff me for any more. He says, well, you must not use the right method. And I said, why? He says, I owe him $500. I says, how the hell did you get him up to $500? He says, by using my head, dummy. I owed him 40 bucks, I owed him 20. I owed him 60, paid him 30. I owed him 100, paid him 50. Of course, it took me quite a while, but I got him up to $500. <laughs> I says, Jack, you're an absolute genius, that's all, just a genius. So one day we're both dying for a drink, and he says, let's see Sam. And I says, Sam isn't going to give us a jug, and he says, let's try him out. I'll show you how to get it. So I says, Sam, give me a jug of so-and-so. And Sam says, can't do it, Jack. He says, you owe me 500 right now, and I have to have it. I'm dying. He says, they're going to, they're going to put me in bankruptcy. My back's to the wall. I owe taxes. He says, I have to have that 500. Can't you borrow it? And they went back and forth and back and forth, and finally Sam made the biggest slip of his life. He says, go down to the bank and borrow it. And Jack says, you mean on a personal note? And Sam says, yeah. Well, he says, you know, I need a cosign around that note. Uh, <laughs> Sam says, I'll cosign. So we'll go to any length to get it. We got our jug. <laughs> uh, now, you see, we had to go to the bank to get this loan, and we had to have a cosigner. So Sam cosigned it. So we gave Sam his 500, and he had to pay it back. Now, you, you understand it, mine. That usually gets a laugh, you see. I have all that talk and I don't get any laugh and it breaks my heart. Well, along about this time, I take this cure, aversion treatment, and uh, $150. In those days, you know, there were all these places you could take aversion treatment and they, they fill you with all the booze you can drink and then they hit you with that apple morphine and you puke your guts out for a few hours and then they, they give you high enemas and they put you, make you, give you something to make you perspire. And then they, they uh, <laughs> give you something to make you sleep. And I got this. I got this. And I paid for it. I tell you, they, they took all my clothes away from me and the doctor away from me and the doctor checked me out and he gave me a little short nightgown that just covered you know what. And they put me to bed and here's four nurses standing out there, two male and two female. And <laughs> the guy pushes, well, the really four females, a couple of gay. So anyway. The guy, the guy switched in here with his with his booze, and he says, "What's your what's your choice?" And I says, "So and so." And they threw this booze down me and got me drunker than hell. And then they hit me in the chest with that apple morphine. And I never puked so much in my life. I knew I never got sick just on booze like that. You know, us billiard drinkers, we know just how sick we get. My head went over the side of the bed, and I never threw up so in my life. It was so bad my eyeballs dropped out, and they were dragging on the floor. You could reach down and pick them. It was terrible. And then they gave me 14,000 high enemies. And then they put... <laughs> it's, it's terrible, girls. And then they put me back to bed. And then, and then they gave me something to make for Perspire. And that was just one treatment. And I got one of these every four hours for three days and three nights. And when I got out of that joint, I was as pure as the day I was born. Believe me. And I got drunk in a week. And now all this time, all my friends and my family and everybody's on my neck, you know, to get off the booze. And of course, I'd stay sober for a week sometimes. And then uh, they, uh, they talked me into going to a psychiatrist who I went to. And he was a good psychiatrist. He couldn't speak English very well. He was a foreigner. You know, you couldn't understand him. But he was a good psychiatrist. And we had three seances together, this psychiatrist and I. And you want to know something? At the end of the three seances, he says, you're, you're, you're just wasting your money. He says, you're a superior intelligence. You don't have no business here. He says... Uh, go your way. You can handle the booze, all right. 
just what I wanted to hear. So uh, that was my psychiatric history. Like John lived in this town, and John, is, he was one of the local boys, come from one of the nice fam fine families in town. All drunks come from fine families, you know that? Some guy would go down the street and hit him both sides of the sidewalk, and these old biddies will see him and say, look at him, and he comes from such a fine family. He comes that So John's family got him to go to the psychiatrist, and he went to the psychiatrist. <laughs> seance after seance, and nothing happened. He just stayed drunk. And finally, the psychiatrist says, John, we're not having success. I want to change the whole method. He says, now, what would happen to you if I cut off your left ear? And John says, my hearing would be impaired about 50%. He says, that's right, and that's right. Now we're getting somewhere. Now, what would happen to you if I cut off your right ear? And John says, I wouldn't be able to see. He says, why wouldn't you be able to see? He says, my hat would fall down over my eyes. There you go, you see. Whereas the next thing was uh, the religion. Now, this goes over a matter of several years. I mean, this just didn't happen one thing after the other. Things are getting bad. We moved up to Tahunga, and one of, my, one of my daughters had asthma, so we moved up there, and I got acquainted with an old Catholic priest up there. I hadn't been to church for 23 years, but that's all right. I was called a fallen away Catholic. Anyway, this guy's name was Dennis Falvey, Father Dennis Falvey from Ireland, a real fine person. He talked me into getting a choir together, and we got to be good friends, real good friends. I'd get drunk. I wouldn't show up. I'd be at his back door, father loaned me five, he'd always give me the money, and he never said once, why don't you quit drinking? And I thought, this, is, he, this guy must have been a drunk himself. He was one of the finest people I ever met in my life, this old Dennis. So anyway, this was a Christmas, and uh, I can't go into this detail, I haven't got enough time. It has to do with a lot of studios and Gene Autry. <laughs> we used to play for Gene Autry out of Republic Studios, the horse operas, you know. And when you played horse operas, all you had to do was be able to read music like crazy and play real high and loud. All those chases, all those chases. And old Gene, you know, he would sing these songs and he couldn't sing them in tune. So he'd do them on a special track with just a guitar and you could get out of, out of you know, out of tune a little bit with a guitar, a little sharp and a little flat. And then we would take that same tune and we'd put the earphones on and we'd watch the music and watch him sing and then we'd, where he'd go sharp, we'd go, put a little mark there, and when it goes flat, we put a little mark there, and we play it, and sometimes it sound like this, change, you see. So by God, when it came out, it sounded pretty good, you know. <laughs> change keys two or three times, we'd back up old Gene with the orchestra. He made ten billion dollars at it. Well, anyway, it was Christmas, and we had a big party at Republic, and I got on a terrible drunk, and I ended up I ended up in a can over Christmas. Don't ever get pinched on Christmas Eve. Oh, God, I tell you, that foul Salvation Army outside of your cell, you're dying, you're sick, you should have been to church for that high mass. I mean, the kids, you were supposed to give them the presents the night before. I smashed up a brand-new car. I hadn't had a drink for a month at the time. Oh, I had the greatest ability in the world to screw up at the wrong time. I was an absolute master at it. So the next day when I called up a, a lawyer to get me out, and he was an ex-musician, old Bunny Cohen, and he says, this was a Christmas morning, and they're playing, and, you know, they're playing these hymns outside of the cell. I'd have killed every one of them if I could have got a gun. I'd have killed myself along with it, I guess. So Bunny says, I'll be right down. It's a lawyer. He got down there at 9.30 that night. I says, where the hell have you been? He says, I was drunk myself. He says, I had to sober up to come down to get you out of it to put me in with you. Everything was wrong, see? So I went down to see old Dennis Fowley the next day, and I says, I guess I'd better take the pledge. And he says, you can take the pledge if you want, but it won't do you any good. And I says, why won't it do me any good? He says, because you're one of those guys. And I've known a lot of guys like you. There's nothing going to help you. I says, what do you mean I'm one of those guys? He says, there's people like you in this world, and nothing's going to ever, ever, ever help them. They just die. I says, you serious? He says, as serious as I'm standing here. I says, do you know anybody that got sober that's like me? He says, just one guy in my life, back in little... Little place down in South Dakota. I had a church, and he says, the, the town drunk, one morning woke up, and he was a different personality. This is what we call a sudden spiritual awakening. And he says, he was a wonderful person and became a great citizen in this town. I said, what caused him to have this change in his personality? He says, that I don't know. That I don't know. All I can do is pray. Someday we'll find out. Now we have found out through Alcoholics Anonymous. So I says, what's going to happen to me? And he says, oh, you're going to end up in the gutter drunk, that's all. And I started walking away. You're going to die in the gutter. He says, just a minute, I want to tell you something before you go. 
He says, you know, he says, it's not a sin to drink, but it's a sin to be a glutton. And that's as much as I can help you, and that's as much as any honest man of the cloth can help you. So what a weight off my shoulders, and I went my way. Because God was good to me, and by God's wonderful way in doing things in our lives, uh, whether we like it or not, my wife got a divorce, which is the greatest favor she ever done for him in my life. So I ended up back in Hollywood like all drunken musicians. And within two or three years, I dropped myself right down the tubes, and I ended up in the south side of Los Angeles in a $2 a week room of a grocery store. And here's where I was. This is my skid row. It wasn't good. There was a liquor store and a booze, a liquor store and a, and a, and a, and a bar, a catty corner from this place. And I had this little $2 a week room, and here I was, dying. All my friends had deserted me. I know you can get your handkerchiefs out and cry with me because I suppose a lot of you have been through the same thing that I was. I've been at the very heights in my profession, and now I'm at the very bottom. I'd walk down the street, and some of my friends coming down the street, they'd cross the street to avoid me. Everything was bad. The undersheriff is dropping by. Get that alimony to your ex-wife, or we're going to put you on Biscalusa Road Building Project out here. I'm walking up alleys. I'm getting every time it seemed I'd, I'd start drinking, I'd end up in the, in the can. I was in the can so many times I couldn't even count them. It was terrible. I'd always go up side streets when I drove that old... <laughs> I had a car you wouldn't believe. It was a 34 of a convertible a Pontiac, straight eight. It just chugged. It just chugged. And I'd go up side streets so the cops wouldn't get me, and I'd go real slow. And they'd pinch me because they thought I was casing some joint to burglarize it, you know. Not because I was drunk, of course, I always end up in a can of root. It was awful. And I'm lonesome. And I met a gal by the name of Cecilia, whose husband had just died, and she had a little daughter. And she was lonesome. And Cecilia and I hooked up right there. Now, we've been married 43 years, Cecilia and I. She saved my life. I had someone I could talk to, someone to do, do things along with me. And we, we were... We were just, it, God, it's God's will. Everything was God's will, and this is the way it happened. Finally, I got into a real bad jam. And I got out in 90 days. So I got 90 days, and I got out in 45 days. And I said, if I ever drink again, I'm going to commit suicide. And I went back to this two-dollar-a-week room. You know, there's something about al alcoholics. I don't know. We can make mountains out of molehills better than any other class of people in the world. And I was one of them. Something happened after I'd been sober about a month out there. Something happened. And I started drinking again. Just like all alcoholics, I jumped on the horse and I rode in all directions. And this is my last drunk, the worst drunk I'd ever been on in my life. I damn near died. I wanted to die. I wanted to commit suicide drinking. And what is this disease called alcoholism? As I understand it, we are allergic to alcohol. We are of that 10% of the people in the world when we drink it causes a compulsion to continue drinking. And a compulsion means that we are compelled to continue drinking. Nothing can stop us. Nothing. Unless we're tied up, put in jail or something. And this is something that we all have, this compulsion, this physical compulsion. Why do we take that first drink? Because we are emotionally unstable people. And because of our emotional instability, we get ourselves into a point and something comes along, some defective character comes along at the same time and we take that first drink. We're absolutely helpless to keep from taking that first drink. So we can't do anything about the physical part. All we can do is work on our emotional instability. Now, it's all in the book. Everything's in the book. Good old-fashioned, down-to-earth common sense. I found out about myself in the fourth step. Defects of character, which were always the thing that triggered me off on that first drink. I found out that I always got drunk whether things were good or bad. I'm going to a party tonight. My uncle has a birthday. Somebody's got a wedding. I always got drunk when things were good. I had to celebrate. I couldn't stand it. I was just, hooray, let's go. And on the other side of the people where things were bad, I had to get drunk because things were bad. I mean, and, 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 and I found out in this fourth step whereby... I could lay out these defects of character that I had. So I sat down with my fourth step and I said, the worst defect of character that I have, which causes me to get, start drinking more often than anything else, is self-pity or frustration. And that will carry you a long way. And the next first defect of character that I have are resentment. And I would let them build up till I couldn't handle them and I had to get drunk. The third worst defect of character that I have is intolerance. And the fourth worst defect of character that I have is selfishness. Instead, we're just sitting down and analyzing ourselves just the way the book says. This is self-analysis. 
It's wonderful. And I find out that these are the things that always cause me. And I am, I am, I am emotionally like a little baby, four years old, laying on the floor and kicking his feet and crying. I was just emotionally in the same category as that little child, four years old. And we do grow emotionally in Alcoholics Anonymous because our mind is reverted to other things. Our mind is reverted to helping other people. Our mind is reverted to forget ourselves and all these selfish ideas that we have. Nobody's perfect. Well, we do it enough so we can stay sober and start living like a human being. And this is Alcoholics Anonymous. It's so simple. It's so down to earth. So I went on this last month, and I was passed out every day by noon. And I used to be down at that liquor store, I mean, the the, uh, the uh, bar. And I'd be 6 o'clock in the morning helping the guy clean the joint up, and I'd start drinking, and by 11 o'clock I'd be plastered, and I'd go next door and get my jug and crawl up and pass out on the bed. And Cecilia, nobody else could stop me. And then I got a call from old Jack across town. Old Jack. That was March 1st of 1941. Old Jack called me and he says, did you see the Saturday Evening Post this week? And I says, no, why? He says, there's an article in there about a group of people in New York called Alcoholics Anonymous and they've sold our racket. I says, what do you mean? Yeah, he says, they stole our racket. He says, it shows the guy lying in bed and another fellow's giving him a jug, which most likely is some of our medicine. And he says, as I understand it, when that guy in bed is well and the other fellow's on his can, he goes and helps him. He says, it's called one alcoholic and helping the other, just like you and me. I said, no kidding. And I said, he says, yeah, there's a hundred of them in this, in this club. And I said, no, it's just like an alcoholics union. He says, that's right. The drunkard's union. I says, read me some more. Well, he says, you see, I'm pretty drunk and my eyes won't focus on that small print right now. So a few weeks later, I get a call from Jack and he says, I found this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. So I says, yeah, what about it? He says, they stay sober. I says, no kidding. And he says, yeah, they stay sober. He says, I was down at the liquor store cupping for a jug and one of the local drunks around here was paying part of his bill. And I says, hey, what are you paying your bill for? You want to ruin it for the rest of us around here? And the guy says, you don't get that, huh? So the guy, <laughs> the guy says, no, he says, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he says, I'm, I'm just uh, making amends like we do. And he says, well, what about it? And he says, well, we stay sober. And so Jack says, I went to a meeting and I've been, I've been sober a week. And I says, oh, my God, the worst psychopathic drunk in the world and you've been sober a whole week, I'm a cinch for a lifetime. I said, send that dodo over. And he says, oh, no. He says, you don't send him over. He says, here's his name and his phone number. And he says, you call him. So I called this dodo, and he says, be over tomorrow afternoon. And I said, don't come in the afternoon. He says, why? I said, I'll be passed out. He says, you're still giving orders. And I says, yeah, I'll be passed out. At this time, there were just 400 members of AA in the whole world at this time. So anyway, we finally got together after <laughs> bouncing around a while, and the old landlady got me sober. And uh, this guy come over and he started giving me the business about God and all of this, these, these things. And I says, oh, oh, here we go again. Another another Southern California religion. Just as sure as hell. And it sure sounded like it, you know. So he says, oh, no. And I says, oh, yeah. I says, uh, you, you, haven't, you haven't shown me. He says, well, there's 34 of us down here. I says, no. But I said, uh, well, how do you stay sober? Well, we, we look to God. And I says, there you go. You're bringing up this religion. So I'm in a hell of a shape to argue with him. And <laughs> So he said, he said, well, I'll come over and pick you up Friday and take you down. And I said, just a minute. I'm not going to lend my, lend my name to a bunch of you wacky doodles. And I says, I want to check this out to find out just what it is. Well, I'm not going to lend my name to another cult or something. And uh, he said, uh, okay. And he got mad and he wrote out the address. Well, Friday came and I'm dying, of course, and sick. I'd lost 30 pounds and I was practically out of this world. And I called up Cecilia and I said, Will you go down with me? I'm scared to drive. And she says, okay. So we went down and went to the door, and the guy says, do you want to stay sober on an all-time basis, just like I told you before? And I said, yeah. He says, step inside. And I says, uh, my, my sponsor, uh, so-and-so and so-and-so, uh, uh, is here, isn't he? And he says, oh, don't you know about him? And I says, no. He says, he got drunk last night. I said, that's wonderful. I didn't like the guy anyway. So he says, you sit down over in the front row. So we sat in the front row, and here the guy is up there talking about God again. And I said, well, this is the Main Street Mission. All they need is sawdust on a chair and uh, on the floor. And, you know, I was very disappointed, very disappointed. The little guy sitting next to me, little Charlie Swearinger, and I turned to him and I said, this is the Main Street Mission, Dad. And I said, all they need is sawdust on the floor. I said, this is, I've heard all of this. He said, look, I'm with you. And he says, I've been coming back here and I've been staying sober and I don't know what the hell it is. And he says, all those guys over there are sober. I said, they've got something here that you and I don't understand. But he says, they're, they're sober. So stick around. Give yourself a break. At least eight meetings. And I says, well, I'll just show you. So I stayed. Thank God. Celia was with me. And I met a guy by the name of Pete Cunningham who came in there long before I had at least two weeks. There was one guy, a little Mortimer Joseph, that just died this morning. He was in there a year ahead of me. 
And then one guy six months and all the rest of us were on weekly, <laughs> weekly deal. So uh, Pete kind of stirred me around. And now I'm sober and I get the old horn on and get practiced and get myself back in good shape. Now everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to get back there and I'm going to be the first remote player at all the big studios and I'm going to get my time and a half again and make my 20 grand a year, which was big money in those days. And everything is just going to be fine. But it didn't happen that way. You see, I look back now and this is all God's will. If everybody would have thrown their arms around me and welcomed me back to the studios, the old ego would have asserted itself. I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I'd have been drunk again. So you see, God's will is the thing that we live by. He will take care of everything. Maybe not immediately, but when it's supposed to happen. So the first year I was sober, I had the poorest year I ever had financially. And I stood up at the one of the meetings one night and I says, I used to make more money when I was drinking. And one of the mean old bastards says, go back to drinking. And I says, I don't want to. He says, okay, sit down and shut up and listen. So I went to the leader of the group. His name was Frank Randall this night. Frank is gone now. I said, do you know anybody in the music business? And he said, no, why? And I said, I need a job real bad, and I thought you might have an angle. He says, my boy, this is not an employment agency. This is a place to stay sober. He says, what's your number one problem? And I said, alcohol is my number one problem. He said, okay. Take care of your number one problem, and everything else will take care of itself when it's supposed to. You might not get a job for five years the way you've kicked this pe these people around, but you'll eat, and you'll have a roof over your head. And from now on, worry about one thing, your number one problem. And everything you get in this world, you will deserve, because this is your number one problem. Take care of your number one problem. And I don't think there's been a day gone by since that time that I don't think of it. i got one problem. And that's alcohol. And if I take care of that problem, everything else will take care of itself when it's supposed to. Now, along about this time, there was a little piano player by the name of Fidgy McGrath. Fidgy's dead now. You remember Fidgy? Yeah, you remember Fidgy. There's that guy used to be a bassoon player sitting right over here. You ever hear of a bassoon player? That's that farting bedpost that we used to play. So... <laughs> I don't know how that slipped out. I never did that before. <laughs> but that's the truth. He just looks like a bassoon player, that's all. So, Fiji uh, had a job at CBS on radio, and he was getting about 500 a week. He was a little guy, stood about 5'6", and he was wonderful. Wonderful piano player. All we musicians loved him. Nice family, lived out in Santa Monica, owned his own home, his own cars, and a couple of kids. Everything's fine. And Fiji started to drink it. And honest to God, in no time at all, Fiji was a full-blown alcoholic. Of course, he lost his job, he lost his family. Now he's playing his, his piano bars around for about 50 bucks a week in tips. He got a job away out on the south side, nice piano bar, went out and chased the whole area. Of course, he has to find a place to sleep, a place to live. So he found himself a room for 10 bucks a week. He went back to the <clears throat> piano bar and he found that from the piano bar over to this room, he could take a shortcut through a little cemetery. So every morning at 2 o'clock when he gets through work, he's drunk as a goat, he follows this winding path through this little cemetery and he's home. You know, in about 10 minutes. Never got pinched or anything. But this particular morning, it's cold and it's wet and it's raining and Fiji is unusually drunk. And he stacked through this little cemetery and my God, he got off the path and he fell in a hole that was dug for a funeral the next day. And here's the poor little bastard at the bottom of this hole. He can't reach the top and he's screaming like a Comanche all night long. About dawn, an old wino come wandering through the cemetery, and he hears his beller. And he wandered around, and here he finds little old Fidget down at the bottom of that hole. Spread eagle out, giving up. And the wino says, what's the matter down there? He says, get me out of here, I'm freezing to death. Get me out of here, I'm freezing to death. And the wino looked at him a minute, and he says, well, no wonder you're freezing to death. You kicked all your dirt off. get back to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We find that the first three steps are decisions we make and from there on they're working steps. And this is the part of the program where we have to keep continue doing the rest of our lives. We get down to the 12th step. Having had a spiritual awakening, and I've described that, we will have a spiritual awakening unbeknownst to ourselves, which is really the true change in our personality. And we stay sober. And you know, 
Probably no human power could help us, but God couldn't would have thought. We find out that action is the magic word. And the old saw that God helps those who help themselves is as true in Alcoholics Anonymous as anything else. But it's so simplified. We live these 12 spiritual steps. We are seeking the help of God as we understand him as alcoholics. Now, this little boy was four years old, and his family had taken him everywhere because he went completely blind at the age of four. And no one was able to diagnose why he couldn't see. And he grew up to be a fine-looking young man, high school, college, everything, but he's completely blind. And in this small city where they lived, there was a young doctor moved, and there was an eye specialist and an eye surgeon. And through the first year, he helped a lot of their friends very much, so the boy went to see him. And the doctor says, from what they tell me, from what you tell me, it'll take me some time to diagnose why you can't see. So he went back for many, many examinations, and finally the doctor says, I think I have the proper diagnosis, but it'll mean an operation. And the boy says, let's go. So they went to the hospital, and he operated on this boy, and he laid up in this hospital bed perfectly still, perfectly quiet, with bandages over his eyes for exactly 23 days. At the end of the 23 days, the doctor called up the family and he says, tomorrow we will find out whether this operation was a success or not. And here's the whole family standing around the bed in this hospital room. The doctor slowly took these bandages off the boy's eyes. And when he got them completely off his eyes, the boy opened his eyes and, my God, he could see light. And he could see his family, he could practically recognize him. He grabbed the doctor by the hand and he says, doctor, I don't know how to thank you. I just don't know how to thank you. The doctor says, don't thank me. All I did was put in the stitches. And God took care of the rest. It's just exactly like Alcoholics Anonymous. All we do is put in the stitches, and God takes care of the rest. God bless you all. Good night. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.